Eleven. <laughs> All right, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Ten. <laughs> Nine. <laughs> Eight. Seven. Six. Five. <laughs> four. A four. Three. A four. Three. Two. One. All right, so I've got this band, Jazz Sputin and the Jug Skunks, and I guess I'm Jazz Sputin, but I don't know. I, I'd kind of like to figure it that like the whole band together is Jazz Sputin, but then everybody individually is the Jug Skunks. But it's so, so we're sort of an abstract band, so I'd like to think of that band in an abstract way. But we write some kind of abstract tunes, and uh, one of them was as a result of, of a conversation I had with one of my students, who's this really young girl who's a fiddle student of mine, and she wasn't really a big fan of the fiddle, and it was hard to get her to, to take it out of the case. Like, Come on, take your fiddle out of the case. and It would be about a 10-minute process before I could get her to take the fiddle out. So, um, But then finally we get the fiddle out, and we start messing around on some, some tunes, and, and uh, we're playing some you know old-time fiddle tune. I don't like this tune. I was like, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Well, uh, is there any tune? You know, is there any kind of music that, or any songs that you that you really like a lot that maybe we, I could write out and we could try and try it out on the fiddle? And uh, you know, any rock and roll songs that you like a lot? She says, rock and roll. What's that? Rock and roll. What do you mean, what's rock and roll? Everybody knows what rock and roll is. And she says, uh, well, I know what rock is. Goes, oh, okay. But, well, what's rock and roll? And she was all kind of upset at this rock and roll thing that I said. And so I said, well, rock and roll, it's, oh, okay. Well, if you know what rock music is, rock and roll is an archaic art form. It happened many, many years ago before you were born. And uh, it kind of evolved into rock. I guess today's rock music. But rock and roll, it was it was this archaic art form that, that used to be very, very cool. And it used to be very edgy, but now it's kind of uh, kind of Disney-ish in its uh, presentation. But, but uh, anyways, so I ended up writing this song called Rock and Roll Music that was kind of based on, uh, on that. Although I don't know if she'd be a big fan of this song, but I don't know. Who knows? She might. Hey, hey all right. Thank you so much. That was Steve Roy, PMAC faculty member, telling a story of how he had to explain the definition of rock and roll to one of his young students and how that led eventually to the composition of a new piece called Rock and Roll by his band Jazz Butin and the Jug Skunks. My name is Russ Grazier. I'm executive director at the Portsmouth Music and Arts Center, and I'd like to welcome you to the next edition of Sound in Color. Today on the podcast, we have visual artist Michael Stasek, one of our visiting artists on the West End Master Series here at PMAC, a series of talks given by visual artists about their work. Michael is a sculptor and also works with creating sets and designs for theatrical productions with a summer program out west in Colorado. We talk a little bit about that, as well as that theater troops travels throughout the world and their outreach to different countries. Uh, so we hope you enjoy this conversation. Ziggy played guitar, jamming good with weed and voodoo, and spiders from Mars. 
Okay, the first question I have to ask a lot of people, and this is because I grew up having my name mispronounced all the time. Is Stasic the correct pronunciation? Um, I say Stasic. Stasic. Oh, so Michael Stasic. Um, Michael's our guest today on the podcast. Um, Michael is a visual artist in the Seacoast area and was one of the first participants in the PMAC West End Master Series um, here at Portsmouth Music and Arts Center. He presented a lecture in November, and uh, we had a great crowd turnout, um, including some young people, to uh, learn more about Michael's work and everything that um, he's doing in art and in the community and uh, to share some of his work with people. So welcome. Thank you. Well, <laughs> yeah, I was going to welcome you, but it's your place. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, this is a new thing for us, um, and not that having guests in. We've had guests in for years and years now, but we're working toward um, kind of formalizing the way that we bring people into the community and different types of artists in the community. So the Western Master Series that you participated in is new this year. And what it does is it gives us the opportunity to open our doors to anyone in the community for free to come in for a session in the gallery space and have an artist from the community come in and talk about their work. It's the type of thing that I remember experiencing when I was in college, but um, when a guest artist would come through the school, whether when I was in music school, a musician would come through town and they'd bring them to talk to the students or the graduate students. Um, and we love the idea of doing this. Um, do, you, do you get out and talk to people in public about your work very often? Um, well, I've been a regular at the George Marshall Store Gallery in York, Maine for, I think it's now 20 years. And um, so gallery showing requires a certain amount of um, showing up and talking to yep. people at openings and whatnot. But I, I teach... Um, I teach at the elementary level part-time in the town of New Durham, New Hampshire, but I also teach workshops to adults in places like Haystack Mountain School of Crafts, um, Aramont School down in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Um, and um, so I've, I've, my PowerPoint is ready for that audience. Excellent. So um, I, I can handle the invitation <laughs> and uh, put that hat on easily. Well, it was a fantastic presentation. We've gotten wonderful feedback about it. And we learned a lot about uh, you as an artist and the way you approach your work. Um, how, how would you describe your work to someone who hasn't seen your work before? And I know that's a hard thing for an artist to do is to put into words what really is a visual experience. But how would you describe what you do? Well, there's two sort of main areas that I work in. One is in found objects, which is mostly wood. And I, I approach that um, kind of like a furniture maker or a toy maker. I'm mostly drilling holes and putting wooden pegs in and putting things together with wood glue. And I'm working in a style that you'd call folk art. And that sort of includes people who are self-taught, sometimes people who are taught through um, a local tradition. I, I'm, I'm interested in the figure and I'm interested in sort of finding my way through discovery. So um, that's pretty much how I came to it. Mm -hmm. In terms of materials, we live in a part of the world where flea markets are rich with wooden things, whether it's toys or tools or furniture fragments. Uh, the, the sense of age and nostalgia to those old um, parts um, is, it's a world that I like to play in. It's really interesting because you use the word nostalgia 
and when I look at your work, and we'll post some images and a link to your website on our podcast page so people can go and take a look at what you actually do. Um, but when I look at your work, it comes with this nostalgia already because of the materials you're using, separate from the actual piece. They come with some nostalgia. When you came to do the presentation, you filled a table with different items that you would use in some of your constructions. And I picked up a set of blocks that I must have had when I was two years old, three years old. And it brought back this immediate visceral you know, memory, nostalgic, um, you know, these are blocks that you might not be able to buy down at Toys R Us today, but I remember them from the late 60s, early 70s as being an integral part of my toy box when I was a kid. And so when you put things like that into a sculpture, um, it adds a different layer of nostalgia. I mean, is, is that some of what you're talking about when you talk about the nostalgia of your work? Yeah, there, there's there's a color palette to things from the 1940s or 50s in wood. I, I, I can't pick a date for when we switched over to plastic, but um, certainly things in the 60s and 70s uh, changed over to a, a different color palette and a different set of materials. I like the sort of the story of a non-story in a way, mm -hmm. you know, just a figure holding a prop that suggests a story. And... Um, um, gesture has become sort of the thing that I spend most of my time thinking about in terms of how I put things together. It's where most of my time goes. You know, it's all the small angles that go into every single connection that um, animate uh, the figures that I do. Now, if I remember correctly, in your presentation, you brought us back to your childhood and talked a little bit about the impact of Mr. Potato Head. Yeah, that was that's my opening image when I do my PowerPoint. And um, my, my PowerPoint was called Process and Inspiration. Mm -hmm. And um, so the idea of what inspires us is, you know, it's a question that I've asked myself. And um, it's one of those art questions. You know, I grew up in a different society than what people are growing up in now. I'm I'm 56 years old, and um, part of the the connection to Mr. Potato Head was he was born in 1958. So I describe myself as first generation Mr. Potato Head, uh -huh. and um, I would say in addition to gestures, um, the habit of putting two eyes, a nose, and a mouth on things is. Um, is something that um, I, I don't seem to be able to avoid that. <laughs> That's where I go back to is why do I do that? <laughs> yeah. And it's possibly it is Mr. Potato Head. And, and another thing that I learned about you is this binary nature of your work in the personal sculpture work that we're talking about now that you're doing and also the, the work that you do in theater particularly in youth theater. Tell us a little bit about the summer program that you work with and how that came to be and how that plays into your artistic output. Um, well, the, the program you're talking about is called the Mud Butt Mystery Theater Troupe, and it's a Telluride Academy program um, that takes place in the summers for four weeks in Telluride, Colorado. And I go out there for three weeks and crank out as much sort of puppet, mask, oversized object, stage um, items um, that I can put out in that time slot. And I get a lot of help from adults and from kids. And um, the program is really, um, it's a collaboration between 
kids and adults. So we're able to set the bar in a pretty high place for, um, you know, what we want the finished product to look like and what our process looks like. I, we celebrate the happy accident, which is a very sort of artistic thing Yeah, that in a school setting, um, time constraints and all the other things that exist in a school, um, it's, it's a little harder to, um, live in that sort of, um, sensibility and that, um, sort of way that time and shared creativity get explored. Uh, that program in Colorado gave birth to a travel program that, uh, for three weeks in April, we take a group of kids that we've previously worked with to another country and have a two week work schedule with kids in that country. The American students have homestays with families um, in the country that's hosting us. And um, we put on a performance for the community at the end of that. And the kids that go from America on that trip are kids who are involved with the Telluride School? Yeah, they're mostly from Telluride. It's a, um, it's a community of means. So some of those kids, you know, they might be New York or California yep. kids that um, spend summers in Colorado. But there's also... Um, there, there's um, money that's raised to um, also include scholarship kids, so it's um, you know it, it it does its best to be balanced, but it's um, it it really happens because of that community is able to um, financially make it happen. Well, what I've read about the program is really remarkable because the the list of countries and communities that you visited throughout the world um, doing this work is worthy of a secretary of state. I mean, it's like you're going everywhere all over the world, Vietnam and South America and to Brazil and Europe and all over the place. I mean, maybe more Africa. Do you, do you spend much time in Europe? Is that one of the places they go? I think, you know, budget-wise, um, the plane ticket sometimes is the big yep. line item. Yep. And um, Europe is an expensive place to be on the ground. Yep. And... Um, but also it's, um, you know, you're referring to the sort of grassroots peacemaking yeah. um, piece of what the program represents. And um, I, I would say that is that's definitely um, in the mix for mm -hmm. why the program exists. And um, Wendy Brooks, who's the she's the founding director of the Telluride Academy. Now she's um, retired from that, but she still is the leader of our um, international trips. She's tried to keep a rotation going so that we, like every third year, we're visiting a Muslim country or, uh -huh. you know, whatnot. Well, that's fantastic. And, um, it's, um, you know, some of the countries we've been to, it's it's not so easy to go back. You know, yeah. Turkey is not, we've, we've been to Cappadocia, Turkey twice, and um, this probably isn't a time in history when we could do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't see us going back to Ethiopia again. Mm -hmm. Um, that was kind of a, an ambitious adventure the first time and, mm -hmm. um, it was a great trip and, um, I sort of describe myself as over gifted in the experiences I've had. But, um, you know, I mean, we had tickets to Jordan one year uh -huh. and then, um, Egypt, um, erupted. And so we had to, um, cancel that. Oh, wow. And somebody knew somebody in Chile and we ended up in Pucan, Chile with, um, very little planning, but, uh, that was a good trip. How's the experience for the American kids who who participate in this program? What's what's the feedback been? Um, it's pretty life changing. 
You know, I, I would believe that. I mean, yeah. it's it's certainly the material for um, you know college essays that get written. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the what those kids end up doing in the future. You know, maybe that's still to be determined. Um, we've been on twenty of the trips, and um, there's that question of where you put your energy in the world if you're an educator, and um, um, who knows? Maybe those those kids are the ones to be enlightening because yeah, they'll be the movers and shakers of the future. Do and, do kids uh, do the trip more than once, or is it typically a yeah, different group? The local program is ages ten to thirteen. And um, the travel age is generally 13 to 15. So will they go two or three times on the trip? Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. What's your, what's your teaching philosophy? I mean, if you, uh, we talk to teachers a lot, and we have, a, you know, a, a building full of teachers here, and we have a core philosophy as an organization, but I find that individual teachers have their own spin on how they teach, how they approach teaching, um, and what their role is in the life of a student. Um, how would you describe your teaching philosophy? Well, I believe in the building blocks. You know, I, I think, you know, drawing with a pencil uh-huh. as opposed to a computer screen. Yep. Um, I, I still believe in that. Um, but as far as creative ideas, um, you know, sometimes I will build curriculum out of just, taking a piece of artwork that I like and decoding it for an assignment and doing that with students so that they're um, um, creating an interpretation using um, that work as an inspiration. Um, Sometimes I'm teaching a process and it's very open-ended in terms of where they want to go with it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in adult teaching situations, I would say most people don't teach how to do something in terms of, um, um, you know, the what to do. Mm-hmm. It's really it's really more of a process-based um, uh, way of teaching and that the art part is discovery. And, um, you know, it's hard to teach creativity, but um, I, you can set the stage for it or do it by example. Yep. And... Um, um, I always do a demo um, when um, I give an assignment with kids. And I, I mean, when I was in art school, that was really, I mean, if you could get a, a, a teacher or a professor to do something in front of you, that was, you know, that was a pretty interesting and educational thing. Definitely. But I think a lot of teachers don't want to teach that way because they don't want to be cloning students to mm-hmm. do exactly what they do. Yep. So there's um, there's a dilemma there for teachers. I mean, I, I'm not worried about creating clones uh-huh. at the uh-huh. elementary age. Yep. yep. If I get a group of kindergarten students to draw turkeys the same way I do, they're all going to look different anyway because yep. of yep. Um, their oh, kids. Yeah. Their kids doing it. But I, you know, I think a lot of um, the creative teaching is. Um, not correcting them, mm-hmm. you know that uh, that color in between the lines thing can um, can be not such a good thing. Now, ha- now, working a lot with elementary age students and younger students, have you had students come back to you later in their lives after they've graduated high school and learned that maybe 
some influence you've had on them has caused them to go into arts or or have you had students that have pursued visual arts and gone on to do what you do in a different way uh yeah i have heard some of that that's that's i i find that to be such a, a amazing experience um, one of the questions I ask everyone who comes and visits this podcast is what advice you would give to a young person, middle schooler or high schooler, who's considering embarking on that journey, going to art school, uh, becoming an artist. Um, you know, what advice would you have for someone who's at the very beginning of that journey? Um, well, I would go back to um, me as an example. You know, kids at school know that I do these other things and they see evidence of it. Mm -hmm. um, it's not so easy to get um, a kid from rural New Hampshire to um, go with their family to an art gallery. But I've I've had a few kids show up at um, at, at gallery events that I've been part of. Um, what was the question? Well, it's about, you know, there's two ways to ask it. One way to ask it is what advice you would give to oh. someone who's thinking about doing that. The other way to ask the question is what do you wish you knew when you were starting out on the journey that you would tell someone else who's starting out on the journey now? <laughs> They're very different questions. <laughs> I <but> think, <laughs> well, if I could turn the clock back, I wish somebody had told me that I could be paid to use a hot glue gun. <laughs> you know, I mean, I... I I graduated from art school in um, 82, and I was probably the last of a generation who learned art just for the sake of learning art without a lot of um, sort of school pressure for what you were going to do when you graduate. I, th I think schools really care about their graduates ending up somewhere. Yep. And, um, you know, it probably causes a lot of people to get deep into you know, computer graphic design or thinking about, you know, how they're going to get a job. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I didn't think about that. And when I graduated art school, I realized that I was equipped to run a cash register. <laughs> and so I, um, I mean, I was living in Chicago and I could have gone looking for a theater arts job and probably found one mm -hmm. um, at that point in time. But I, um, I didn't even know that that's what I wanted to do. You know, the, the theater arts work that I do was through discovery, really, the same way that um, pretty much everything else I do um, came about. So, you know, turning the clock back is not, it's not just advice. It's sort of um, knowing that it's something that you want to do. Yeah. And sometimes you just don't even know it yet. Yeah. But... Um, I think my advice to any young person would be keep an eye on being creatively happy. You know, that um, I see kids today um, entering the work world and making a salary way beyond what I was making yep. entering the work world way back when. Yep. And, um, I mean, I think they're being paid probably more now than I make now. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, once you've gotten used to a certain salary, it's pretty hard to change. Yep. And, um, you know, I, I, I never, I never had that kind of a paying job, so I didn't have something to lose. Yep. And the fact that I'm a part-time teacher, um, I, you know, I teach two days a week, so that leaves me five days to figure out the art part. So, you know, that, that was, 
that was a smart move that I made almost by accident. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, there I am. A life of happy accidents. Yeah, well, if it has the word happy in the sense, it's a good place to end up. So yeah, no, that's I've, great. I, I, I've got a lot of variety in my life. I've mm -hmm. got a lot of um, creative time that I get to spend with other creative people. You know, in the two days a week that are my nine to five jobs, I, I get to hang out with kids. Yep, yep. Well, I can tell you, as a viewer of your artwork. Um, something that comes through the many layers of the work and the nostalgia and everything is also a sense of joy yeah. and, and and this real sense of connection to the world around you. And um, I, I really, really appreciate that. And it, it was absolutely fabulous getting to know you and getting to know your artwork. So thank you for taking the time to come in and, and chat with us following up on that, that fabulous lecture that you gave last month. And uh, we hope you'll be back here sometime either to exhibit some work or to give another talk or maybe even at some point down the line teach a class um, because we're really trying to build a community here for n not just the students and the families but also for the local artists and musicians in the area. Um, and we're glad to have you be a part of that through this Wesson Master Series. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. And where were the spiders? Oh, when the fly Sound and Color, the PMAC podcast, is produced by Pip Clues with executive producer Jennifer Minacucci. It is a production of the Portsmouth Music and Arts Center, PMAC, a nonprofit community visual arts and music school located in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And this is one of many things that we do to bring music and art into our communities. The music you heard on today's podcast was David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust as arranged by Steve Roy and performed by the PMAC Jazz Faculty with Steve Roy singing at our 2016 Jazz Night tribute to the life of David Bowie. Thank you for listening. Mama, boy, could he play that guitar? Making love to his ear.